We are continuing in our series in Christology, and uh, last time we were together, when we were talking about the work of Christ, we spoke a little bit about the, the meaning and the significance of the name of Jesus, but also we got into the early life of Jesus. We saw that uh, Jesus' name and uh, what he did during his early life uh, plays an important role in what he will do when he reaches age 30 and begins his ministry. And I hope that what you saw in last time, uh, last, uh, what was it, three weeks ago's uh, lesson, or two weeks ago's lesson on the name of Jesus and the early life of Jesus is a few things. But number one is, I hope you saw that Jesus is the only one who lived up to his name. Jesus is the only one who lived up to his name, that he is to be the savior of men. Christ, that he is the one, the anointed one, the one whom was promised long ago and if you remember uh, in those times uh, that Jesus was living in, that a name carried much significance. Uh, people named their children after the great expectations that they had of their children. And we have to note that the name Jesus is not a name that uh, Mary and Joseph were looking at when they were looking at a uh, maybe a baby book and they were scrolling through what name to name their son, uh, they didn't come across the name Jesus. It wasn't by Mary's and Joseph's debating and going back and forth of which name we should pick. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, uh, they didn't bring about and think of the name Jesus, but rather the name Jesus was the divinely ordained name that was to be given to the Messiah. And we know that to be the second person of the Trinity. But also, when we think about the early life of Jesus, we aren't to just, and we can think about this, but we're not going to get very far, and we, we can't start to wonder, well, did he do this? And did he do that? And did he like to play this game? Or did he like to eat this type of food? Because we're not going to get very far. However, what we should see, though, in the early life of Jesus is that if Jesus slipped up one time when he was two, if he had one sinful wrong thought when he was five, if he ever disobeyed his parents when he was eight, then none of us would be saved. So we aren't to think that the life of Jesus and all of the merits that we gain from his life begins when he began his ministry. But as soon as he came out the womb, he was living for us, even as an infant. He slipped up one time as an infant, one time as a five-year-old, as a 15-year-old, as a 20-year-old, that none of us in this room would be saved. So what we see in the early life of Jesus is that he lived a sinless and an obedient life. Uh, He obeyed his parents. He did all that was commanded and required of them. Now, what happens next in the life of Jesus, specifically in the work 
of Christ. After we have learned about the early life of Jesus, what does the Bible tell us about Jesus? And in all four accounts of the Gospels, we read that the next event that happens is Jesus' baptism. That's where we see the next event. And it's not just merely an event, which it is an event, but it is a great, grand event. It's an event that we have, I'm sure, heard of many times and read many times. And it seems, just at a basic surface level reading, that there's nothing really to it. That Jesus came to the Jordan. We know, then we learn about this man named John the Baptist, this wild, crazy man. And Jesus comes to the Jordan and he's baptized. Some people like to focus on the Trinitarian aspect of the baptism of Christ, where we see all three persons of the Trinity present. We see the Father, where he comes or rather speaks from heaven. We see the Son, and then we see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. But when we think about the baptism of Christ, we have to ask this question, and maybe you haven't asked this before, but when did the life or the ministry of Christ begin? Have you ever asked that before? When did the ministry of Jesus Christ begin? Did it begin at the first time he spoke in a parable? Did it begin at the first time he performed a miracle? Did it begin when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan? Did it begin when he first called out his first disciple? Did it begin at his passion? Did it begin at the Garden of the Assembly? When did the ministry of Jesus Christ begin? And the answer that we have is that the ministry of Jesus Christ began at his baptism. The ministry of Jesus Christ began at his baptism. R.C. Sproul says that there is no more important text in all of the New Testament that defines the work of Christ than this one. Think about that. There is no more important text in all the New Testament that defines for us the work of Jesus Christ. And that text is the text that you have before you this evening, Matthew chapter 3. And if you would, and if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 3. And we'll be looking at verses 13 through 17. The word of the Lord says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John and to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You may be seated. I have just five reasons in which Jesus Christ was baptized. 
five reasons why Jesus Christ was baptized. And I want you to know that I'm not going to say anything that hasn't already been said before. There's much sermons that you can listen to on the baptism of Jesus Christ, and much of what they say are going to be much of what I'm going to say. But what I want you to see, though, is at the baptism of Jesus Christ, um, there's a connection between what the rest of the life of Christ will be and what happens at his baptism. We aren't to disconnect and think that this event is uh, just a separate little event uh, in the life of Jesus, but rather the baptism of Jesus Christ is what prepares him for living the life that we could not live and dying the death that we deserve and being raised to newness of life. So the first reason well, we see Christ is baptized is this. Christ is baptized... Uh, the reason why Jesus is baptized is to publicly identify him as God. To publicly, which is the big word, I think four of the five reasons say that, publicly identifies him as God. That's the first reason. Look at verse 17, if you will. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. As Christ comes from out of the water from being baptized, a voice from heaven appears. And any time we read in scripture a voice appearing, we are to quickly take note because it's a special event. We read of a voice appearing at Mount Sinai when the law was given. But in the New Testament, there's only three times in which we hear of a voice appearing. And they all have to do with Jesus Christ. There's a voice that appears at Christ's baptism. There's another voice that appears at Christ's transfiguration. Where the father says, this is my son and uh, listen to him. But then we also see a voice appearing in the book of John where Jesus is coming under the stress and the weight of carrying the sins of his people. And he's about to begin marching forward to the cross. And as he is in this uh, fear and holy terror, a voice from heaven appears to strengthen him. So very few times we read in the New Testament a voice appearing, which should also uh, be, be a quick note for us. When people say, I heard the voice of God, tell me something. That's very interesting because God only speaks three times in the New Testament. It's a special event. It is the Father who, from heaven, before a crowd of witnesses, identifies Jesus as his son. What an amazing event that would have been to be there. Now, that doesn't mean, or I should ask, what does it mean for Christ to be son? What does it mean for the father to make this public announcement 
that this is my son. Think about that. The father says from heaven, this is my son. So what does it mean for Christ to be son and for him to be the son of the father? Well, when we read the baptism of Christ, this announcement from the father, him declaring or publicly identifying that Jesus is his son, doesn't mean that this is the first time that Jesus is the son or became the son. We aren't to think that the announcement of the father is the first time Jesus became God's son. In fact, in the second century, there was a, a heretical group called the adoptionist who said that based upon a life of good works and obedience to God, Jesus at his baptism was adopted as God's son and was given supernatural powers for his ministry. So we aren't to go that route and believe that by the father affirming Jesus as his son is the first time Jesus became God's son or that he was adopted as God's son. But rather we confess with the Nicene Creed, with the Chalcedonian Creed, with all the Orthodox that have come before us and with the Bible that Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. He is the eternal son of God. There never was a time when the son didn't exist. Just as the father is eternal, the son is eternal. In fact, in the early church, if you read any of the patristics, how they defended the deity of Christ was not merely looking at various biblical passages, which they did, but first they examined what does it mean for a son to be son. But also, what does it mean for the son to be the son of the father? This father being eternal and the son thereby being eternal as well. And when we say Christ is the son, and many people get this uh, uh, confused and mixed up and wrong. When we say Jesus is the son, we're not saying that in an improper way. Note that we're not saying that Jesus is the son in an improper way, nor are we saying that the Bible is using condescending language to us in order for us to understand something. But rather, Jesus is the son is a reality. He is the son of the eternal father. The name son is hear this is his natural name. It's not a title. It's not a status. It is who he is. Jesus is the son of the father. And he is son because he is from the father. Psalm 2-7 says this, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The father incomprehensibly eternally and perfectly begets his son. All of what it means for the father to be God is communicated to the son, as Hilary Apartier would say, in an eternal birth. Gregory of Nazianzus says this, In my opinion, 
He is called son because he is identical with the father in essence and because he is from the father. That's a simple explanation of why Jesus is the son. How is he son? Because he shares the same nature with the father, but also he is from the father. In other words, since the father is God, the son must be God because like only begets like when you beget your children, what came out of you wasn't a dog, right? Or a cat or an alien or, or anything else. But what you beget was another human being. So if the father begets, the father must beget one like him. One that is eternal. One that is God. In order for the son and also in order for a son to be a son, one must come from their father. And here at Christ's baptism, the father is publicly affirming that which is already true, that Jesus is God's only begotten son. And when we say only, we aren't to just pass by that, but he is the only natural son of the father. We are sons and daughters of God, but we are adopted sons and daughters of God. Jesus Christ is the natural son of the father, for he comes from the father. Jesus is God. Uh, Jesus is God's only begotten son. And this ultimately points to the divinity of Jesus Christ. The one who was baptized is no mere man. And I think that's what the father is doing here, that this one who is being baptized is not just a man from Nazareth, but rather he is the second person of the Trinity. That this one being baptized is a divine person. But we also see the father's intimate love that he has for his son. Notice he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now this statement is of utmost importance. And I wish we can just spend the rest of the time just unpacking this statement because this statement here teaches us something about the inner life of the Trinity. It teaches us something about the inner life of the Trinity, that inner life between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The Father eternally loves His Son and is eternally pleased with His Son. John three thirty five, Jesus says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. John fourteen thirty one, Jesus says, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Hear this, saints. The Father announcing his love for his Son in time speaks to the love that the Father has for his Son in eternity past. There is a connection between what's spoken of in time and the relationship that the Father and Son have in eternity past. I would also add that this is a great defense for justification by faith alone in Christ alone. The father says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And if you want to be pleasing to the father, then you must join yourself with the one that is pleasing to the father. 
That is Jesus Christ. So this is the first reason why Jesus was baptized. It was to publicly identify that he is truly God. And in many ways, the father declaring Jesus as his son is affirming what John the Baptist has been saying about Jesus. That's an interesting way of looking at it. But what the father says about Jesus is confirming what John the Baptist has been saying about Jesus. There is a connection here. John the Baptist says of Christ in Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And it was in, it, it, this is important to know because at, in this time period, not even slaves would unloosen the sandals of their masters. They wouldn't even go that low. So John is saying that this one who was coming, I'm not even worthy of doing the lowest thing possible. Which is also interesting because what does Christ do with his disciples? He unloosens their sandals and he washes their feet. John says in John one uh, fifteen, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist is declaring, he's saying that this one who is coming, the Messiah, is the one who was promised of old. He pre-existed before me. In fact, he is my creator. I come from him. So when we hear that the father is affirming Jesus as his son, He's saying what John the Baptist has been saying all along. That the one who comes is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. That he ranks before me because he was before me. He is God in the flesh. Second reason why Christ was baptized was to be publicly identified as the Messiah. The second reason why Christ was baptized was to be publicly identified as the Messiah. So we have he's publicly identified as God. And also, he's publicly identified as the Messiah. Now, when we hear that, I don't want you to think that Jesus wasn't already the Messiah. Even as a baby, Jesus was the Messiah. But at his baptism, he is publicly identified as the Messiah. It is here where the ministry of Jesus Christ is inaugurated. And friends, Have you ever asked this question? And maybe you asked it when we spoke about the early life of Jesus. Why didn't Jesus begin his ministry when he came out the womb? Why didn't Jesus at two, five, six, sixteen, twenty years old start doing miracles, start speaking in parables, start preaching sermons, have his twelve disciples already? Why did he, why did he have to wait this long? Why not just do it when he was in his twenties or when he was 10 or 15? Well, the reason is because in the law, God commanded that prophets, priests, and kings were anointed, were, or would be anointed for their public ministry at age 30. You can read about that in Numbers 4. Verse 30 specifically. So how does this connect with what's going on at Christ's baptism? 
The question is asked, why did Jesus Christ have to wait till he was 30? Because that's what the law required. In order for one to be a prophet, priest, or king, they had to wait until they were 30. So we can say this out of what we just said, that the baptism of Jesus was his ordination service. The baptism of Jesus was his ordination service. Christ at his baptism is ordained as or ordained to the prophet or to the office of prophet, priest, and king. Now that doesn't mean that Christ wasn't already prophet, priest, and king. He was our prophet, priest, and king when he was six months old, when he was 10 years old, when he was 20 years old. But here we see at Christ's baptism that he is publicly ordained to this threefold office. And these are the offices that Jesus Christ will carry out in his ministry. He is our prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, Christ represents God to man. As a priest, Christ offers a sacrificial death to redeem sinners from their sin. And as the king, Christ conquers our greatest enemy, sin and death. Francis Chariton sums up the threefold office of Christ this way. Prophetic light scatters the darkness of error. The merit of the priest takes away guilt and procures a reconciliation for us. The power of the king removes the bondage of sin and death. The prophet shows God to us. The priest leads us to God. And the king joins us together and glorifies us with God. The prophet enlightens the mind by the spirit of illumination. The priest, by the spirit of consolation, tranquilizes the heart and conscience. And the king, by the spirit of sanctification, subdues rebellious affections. And these three offices of Christ is what encapsulates his messianic ministry. If you want to know what is Jesus doing for us when he lived on this earth, he was being our prophet, priest, and king. It is at the baptism of Christ where he is publicly identified as the long-awaited Messiah that all the Old Testament saints long to see. He is the fulfillment of the seed that would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. He is the fulfillment of every shadow, of every type. All of these Old Testament promises of a Messiah that will come and crush the head of the serpent is found in Jesus Christ. And here we see at Christ's baptism that that truth that was spoken long ago in Genesis 3.15 has come to fulfillment. He's here. He's arrived. And the baptism of Christ gives us ample reason to believe that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. You know, saints, that there are many that believe that Jesus wasn't even the Messiah. We read in Isaiah 11 these prophetic words of the Messiah. Hear this. Verses 1 and 2 say this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, 
the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Saints, what do we see at Christ's baptism? Matthew says the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. In other words, the Holy Spirit resting upon Christ at his baptism is the fulfillment of Isaiah 11 in which the spirit would rest upon the Messiah. But we also see at Christ's baptism, another messianic prophecy fulfilled. Isaiah 42, one says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. What did the father say concerning the son? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's what it says of the Messiah in Isaiah 42. Of what will be spoken of. That this one who was coming will be the one that the father has ultimate delight in. That the father would send his spirit and his spirit will rest upon him. The father, in other words is echoing Isaiah 42 when he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Messiah would be the one whom the father delights in the voice from heaven and the, and the spirit resting upon Jesus Christ at his baptism publicly identified as him as that one that was prophesied in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 42. The third reason why Jesus was baptized was to be publicly equipped to be our mediator. To be publicly equipped to be our mediator. And this is a short reason, because I spoke about this already uh, when we talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. But verse 16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he came up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole analogy of the dove and what that means. I will save that for when we get into the Holy Spirit. However, I will say that the Holy Spirit is not a dove. So don't think that, okay? Now, when we read of the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus Christ at his baptism, we aren't to think that this is the first time Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit. Because if you remember, it is the Holy Spirit that has been with Jesus Christ up to this point. He is the one that overshadowed the womb of Mary. He's responsible for the, for the forming and framing of the human nature of Jesus Christ. He's responsible for the, for the conception in the virgin's womb. He's responsible for sanctifying uh, that that human nature when he when he removed it from the substance of Mary. But during the life of Jesus Christ, what we see, or rather I should say, at Christ's baptism, uh, Jesus Christ receives the fullness of the Spirit in order for him to be our Messiah. He receives the Spirit without measure. He receives the Spirit in a way that only a few have ever received the Spirit. And I will add, you, saint, do not have the Holy Spirit in the same exact measure and way Jesus Christ had the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit in a way that would empower him to be our prophet, priest, and king, to be our mediator, 
the one who would come and crush the serpent's head. And during the life of Christ, we see the Holy Spirit working in Christ at almost every aspect of his ministry. I will also add that when the Spirit comes upon Jesus Christ, we aren't to think that the Spirit comes upon Jesus Christ with respect to his divine nature. But the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus Christ with respect to his human nature. The Holy Spirit rests upon the person of Christ according to his human nature, so that according to his human nature, Jesus Christ can live as a human for us. You understand, and we've said this before, that we needed a human to live for us. It was Adam who sinned in our humanity. Therefore, we needed one to be, re- we needed one who would come and redeem us in our humanity. So we have to ask, why was Jesus Christ equipped with the Holy Spirit? He was, yes, united to a divine nature. He was a divine person, but with two natures. But he lived as man. And no mere man, even united to the divine nature, could withstand the blows that he would undergo, not only at the cross, but also at his temptation. If Jesus Christ, as human, unequipped with the Holy Spirit, went into that wilderness to battle Satan, he would have got utterly destroyed. It was the Holy Spirit that equipped the person of Christ according to his human nature to defeat Satan in the wilderness, to perform miracles, to speak authoritatively the way that he did to offer up his spirit, to rise from the dead and to be ascended to the Father. The Holy Spirit was, as Sinclair Ferguson said, was Christ's closest companion. And Christ did everything according to his human nature in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ needed the Holy Spirit in order to be the Redeemer of men. The fourth reason Jesus was baptized was to publicly identify with us. The fourth reason why Jesus was baptized was to publicly identify with us. This is a very sweet point, is it not? And we see this expressed in verse 15. Jesus tells John the Baptist, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, I'm sure many of you have read this uh, text before. And if you read a lot of commentators on this verse, it gets a lot of commentators tripped up and confused. Because they're wondering, how does Jesus Christ fulfill all righteousness when there is no... Old Testament law for one to undergo a baptism like John's. There is nothing in the Mosaic law, ceremonial, civil, that says that one needs to be baptized 
And, and, you, and by you being baptized, you are fulfilling righteousness. It doesn't make any sense. How is Jesus fulfilling all righteousness? By submitting to John's baptism. What does this verse mean? Well, in a nutshell, Jesus is fulfilling righteousness not because John's baptism was an Old Testament command, but by submitting to it, by submitting to John's baptism, he's making a pledge that he will fulfill all the requirements of the law. When he says it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, he's not merely talking about John's baptism, but he's talking about he will be the one to fulfill all the requirements of the law. Galatians 4, 4, 4 and 5 says, Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might be, we might receive adoption as sons. Christ's subjection to the law was not for his own sake, but for ours. He obeyed not to make himself more righteous, but to procure a perfect human righteousness under the law for the justification of his people. And that obedience that he rendered included even the symbol of our repentance. John was baptizing in a baptism for the remission or repentance of sin. And what we have at the baptism of Christ is he is identifying himself with sinful humanity. And this is what makes John the Baptist so shocked when Jesus comes to him to be baptized. John prevented Jesus to be baptized and said in verse 14, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? It doesn't make any sense. Why are you coming to me when I am the one that needs to be coming to you? John understood to a certain degree who Jesus was. That Jesus was sinless, not merely because he was the God man or he was God, but because he was born of a virgin. He was sanctified in the womb. John understood that Jesus was sinless and John was baptizing for the forgiveness of sins. Do you understand John's dilemma? It doesn't make any sense. John is confused. Why would the sinless one request to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins? And I think, saints, the answer lies in what baptism symbolizes. Baptism symbolizes many things. There's many various meanings to baptism. But I think what we find here is that baptism symbolizes and identifies people with someone or something. Think about that. Baptism identifies people with someone or something. When we are baptized, we are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are identifying ourselves with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're saying that we are no longer on the world's team, but we are publicly identifying ourselves with God and we are on God's team. But what do we see in Christ's baptism? Is that his baptism, he's not being baptized because he's a sinner. 
John is baptizing for the remission of sins, but Jesus is not being baptized because he's a sinner, but because he's associated with sinners. That is why Jesus is being baptized. In other words, Jesus is being baptized for us. Christ's baptism is a public declaration that he is the second Adam, that he is our federal head, that he stands in our place. And saints, isn't this what the incarnation was all about? That yes, we can talk about the various metaphysics of the incarnation. How can one person have two natures? What is a nature? What is a person? And all these things. But we must end it with this. That Jesus Christ, the eternal son, became flesh to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And here at his baptism, we see that he's doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Just think about who's standing in line at John's baptism. Who is waiting to be baptized by John? There's a murderer. There's a prostitute. There's a thief. There's a liar. There are those who have been disobedient to their mother and father. There's a lawbreaker. And then there's the eternal son of God who comes to be baptized, to identify with his people. In other words, Jesus doesn't just stand in the place of sinners. He stands with sinners. He doesn't just stand in our place or he doesn't just stand in our place, but he stands with us. He stands in that long line of those who desperately need to be washed from their sins. Gregory Venezianzus says, Christ at his baptism buries the old Adam in the waters. And that's what he does for us. Christ at his baptism, if you think about baptism, we go to be baptized because we are publicly dirty. And when we come out the waters, we are publicly and symbolically being made clean. But Jesus is the first one ever to enter the waters of baptism clean and come out dirty. The first one ever to come out of the waters dirty. And he's identifying himself with sinful humanity. And the fifth and final reason Jesus was baptized was to symbolically point to his death and resurrection. To symbolically point to his death and resurrection. When Jesus Christ enters the water, we want to think of it as he's entering the waters of judgment. He's entering the waters, the same waters that we should be entering. He's entering the waters of the justice and wrath of God. And as he goes down into the waters, he's going down into that coffin. He's going down into his grave. And he's absorbing all of the divine justice and wrath of God for us symbolically. 
And as he is raised from the waters, he's signifying or foresignifying that he will defeat death for us. Think about that picture. And he's pointing to what he's going to do at Calvary. And he's pointing to he will defeat sin, death, and the grave. On that third day when the tomb is rolled away. He's showing us, saints, that what he does, all that he does, yes, he does for the glory of his Father, but also for the salvation of sinners. And what we see at the baptism of Jesus Christ is this marvelous picture that all of those who have united themselves to Jesus Christ by grace alone and faith alone, that same declaration that the Father says to his Son, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, is the same declaration that he says to you. That you are the beloved of the Father. And you are the one that he is well pleased with. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful time.